This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Sick and Murdered, where I share stories of people who cause others to fall ill, sometimes killing them for their own selfish gain. This is part two of the case of Marie Hilly. At the end of our last episode, Marie had been arrested for the attempted murder by arsenic poisoning of her daughter, Carol. She was also suspected of the murder of her husband, Frank, by the same means four years earlier. After being released on $14,000 bail, she disappeared. Left behind was a note that made it appear that Marie had been kidnapped. We'll continue the story from there. There are a lot more surprises in store, so I'm glad you came back for part two. You will not be disappointed. This is Chapter 4 of Sick and Murdered, Marie Hilly, Part 2. Investigators were not fooled by the note left behind. It was written on a piece of envelope, just like the one left taped on Marie's back door, during the time she repeatedly called police to report hang-up phone calls and other harassment. Nothing had come of any of those reports, and police had finally determined that all that drama was faked by Marie. There was one more note that would be discovered, that police believed also had Marie Hilly written all over it, so to speak. The day after Marie disappeared from her motel room, her aunt and uncle, Margaret and Sammy Key, discovered their home had been broken into. A pane of glass in a back door had been busted out with a brick to gain entry. Missing from inside the home was an overnight bag, as well as several items of clothing belonging to Margaret. Some savings bonds were also taken, as well as the Key's car. Left behind was a note that read, Do not call the police. We will burn you out if you do. We found what we wanted, and we won't bother you again. The note was written on the back of an envelope. Not heeding the warning, Margaret called the police. She immediately suspected her niece. Later, police would match this note to others in their files they believed had been written by Marie. A handwriting expert determined they had all been written by the same person. 46-year-old Marie Hilly was on the run. While a search for her was conducted, her trail soon went cold. Aniston police and Marie's family began to wonder if they ever knew the real Marie Hilly. They began to question everything. Who else might have fell victim to Marie, they wondered. On the day Marie Hilly disappeared, Carrie Hilly, Frank's mother, died at Stringfellow Hospital. She had been battling cancer for some time. Marie had shared a home with Carrie before she fell ill. Now a test was conducted on her body to see if she may have been poisoned as well. Frida recalled how Carrie would become ill in the afternoons after having lunch at home with Marie. Tests showed small amounts of arsenic in Carrie Hilly's body, but it was not enough to cite it as a cause of death. It was officially recorded that she had died as a result of cancer. Lucille Frazier, Marie's mother, had lived with Marie for several years and was diagnosed with cancer and died in 1977. They also performed tests on Lucille, but her death was also determined to be as a result of natural causes, although small traces of arsenic were found in her body. However, arsenic poison is known to be a trigger for cancer in the body, so whether Marie had spiked her drinks or food with the poison that ultimately led to their illnesses and death would forever remain a mystery. The officers who'd spent time at Marie Hilly's home, taking her various false complaints of harassment and anonymous threats, had also come down with stomach pains and nausea. They now wondered if they had been victims of Marie Hilly as well. 
there were neighbors of Marie's whose children were frequent visitors at her home who had also suffered from unexplained illnesses. Their chronic illnesses disappeared after moving to another neighborhood. More ominously, Sonia Gibson, Carol's friend, had died suddenly from what was believed to be a complication of a virus. Sonia's mother had never believed the official diagnosis and now insisted her body be tested as well. It wouldn't be until many years later that her question would be answered. More on that later. Even more heartbreaking, Mike Hilly had to wonder whether his mother had also poisoned him and his wife, Terry. Mike had become violently ill immediately after he'd visited Marie and demanded she accompany him to her bank to find out what was really going on with her finances. Terry had become ill while living with Marie in Aniston. She was so sick for so long that she'd miscarried their first child. She became ill again when Marie lived with them briefly. It was pretty obvious to Mike that his father and Carol were not his mother's only victims. Carol's illness and Frank's illness and death were proven to have been caused by arsenic poisoning. After Frank's body was exhumed on October 3, 1979, massive amounts of arsenic were found in his system. There was no doubt what killed him. Ten times the normal level that can be found naturally in the body was found in his hair samples. One hundred times the normal level was found in his nail samples. Pathologists were able to determine that arsenic was administered to Frank Hilly over several months, little by little, with a massive dose administered right before his death. Forensic tests on Carol's hair conducted on the same day her father's body was exhumed revealed arsenic levels ranging from over 100 times the normal level, close to the scalp, to zero times the normal level at the end of the hair shaft. This indicated that Carol had been given increasingly larger doses of arsenic over a period of four to eight months. The only thing Marie didn't count on was just how strong the tiny girl was. It seems as sick and weak as Carol became, Marie just couldn't kill her. Treatment for arsenic poisoning is only effective if it is administered within 24 hours of exposure. The poison that had already entered Carol's tissues and nervous system had already done its damage. Carol was left with nerve damage that left her hands, feet, and legs almost useless. She would have to undergo a long period of painful physical therapy to regain even some of her motor functions. Mike Hilly told investigators that there were a few places he could imagine his mother hiding. She might head toward San Francisco, where Calvin Robertson lived. She had liked Florida, where she'd lived with Mike and Terry. Finally, he could envision her heading somewhere north. She had often spoke of enjoying her time in Boston early in her marriage to Frank. She'd talked about how she'd loved sitting inside, next to a cozy fire, reading, while the snow fell outside. Maybe she'd gone north to Colorado, or closer to the Canadian border, he speculated. The report of the break-in at the Keys' home and their stolen car brought the FBI in and widened the search for Marie. The car was found at a bus station in Marietta, Georgia, within a few days. There were no fingerprints left behind. A federal warrant was issued for Marie Hilly. There were leads, some pretty promising during the search. A woman came forward with a report to police in Georgia. She had met a woman on a bus heading east. The woman was friendly, and they'd had a short conversation. She'd fallen asleep on the bus, and when she awoke, she discovered that the friendly woman had gotten off the bus somewhere during the night. Her purse with all her money, identification, 
and an expensive watch inside was also gone. Now, you might think you know what happened, but this is where this report takes a twist. The woman looked well put together and personable, so the officer believed her when she said she was stranded and had no one to call for help. All her relatives were either dead or estranged, so she didn't know where to turn to. The chief of police took her report and then arranged lodging for her overnight. As this was a small town full of friendly, helpful people, the chief even arranged for a collection to be taken up among the town's merchants. The money was given to her, and she then took a bus and left town. From a photo, the chief identified the stranded woman as Audrey Marie Hilly. The bus was headed to Savannah, Georgia. Agents found that someone matching Marie's description had registered at a hotel in Savannah. She'd stayed for a few days before leaving with a man. That was the last trace they could find of her. People who go underground and change their appearance are often found on the details of their habits. While their appearance, hair color, dress, weight, can all change, personality and habits tend to stay constant. The FBI believed that wherever Marie was, there were a few things that might identify her. One was her need to always be perfectly turned out. Her clothes might not be as expensive while on the run, but they would be stylish, and she would continue to take great care with her hair and makeup. She would most likely be in the company of a man who would help her. She'd always been able to charm men, and now on the run, she would need a rescuer. They believed she would take a job where she could use her clerical skills. She had always been a faithful churchgoer and might continue to attend services wherever she was living. She was a big reader and would probably still purchase books or visit libraries to check out items. Flyers with Marie's picture were plastered in every post office as one of the FBI's most wanted. They distributed them to libraries, beauty parlors, and every police and sheriff's office in the South and along the eastern seaboard. The search continued to widen as a jail cellmate told authorities that Marie had told her she'd head to California if she was released on bail. One other story would take the search into Texas. Marie had repeated a tale to several people that she had a twin sister named Mandy who was given away at birth to relatives in Texas. While untrue, the lead had to be checked out. Who knew what Marie was thinking or what she actually believed at this point? There was no trace of Marie in Texas, but her story foreshadowed another bizarre twist to the story later on. But once again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Even with Marie gone, the case against her continued. On January 11, 1980, two months after she'd fled, the grand jury indicted her for the first-degree murder of Frank Hilly. Mike and Terry had moved their family to Tennessee. They had been uneasy, thinking that Marie might show up someday, and they feared for the safety of their baby son. Mike had been asked to identify the purse and belongings left behind by his mother at the motel room she'd disappeared from. He was struck by seeing several photographs of his son Matthew. They kept close watch on him and felt somewhat relieved once they'd moved to another state, where Mike planned to continue his education. Over a year after Marie jumped bail, Mike and Terry added another child to their family, Their house was located off a quiet country road. One night, they heard the baby cry out from his crib. Mike got up to check on him and glanced out of the window. There he saw the figure of a woman on the dark porch. She seemed to be trying to pry the screen off the window to the baby's nursery. Near her were two men standing out by the road next to a white car. Mike alerted Terry to get the baby while he dialed the police. 
Terry was able to see the figure move away from the window and towards the front door. She told Mike the woman resembled his mother. A spotlight came on from a house across the road, throwing a beam of light toward the front of Mike and Terry's home. The woman and the two men quickly returned to the car and drove off. An FBI agent arrived the next morning to interview witnesses. He showed Marie Hilly's photo to the neighbor, who positively identified her as the woman he'd seen the previous evening. Three months after Marie fled Alabama, she was in Florida. Those three months remained somewhat of a mystery, but we know soon after she left, she was sighted in Savannah, Georgia, with an unknown man. More than likely, it was someone she'd charmed along the way, gave him a false identity, and perhaps been given or had stolen money from him to continue south to Florida. By February, she was in Fort Lauderdale, where she met John Homan. John came from a dysfunctional family situation. His mother was an alcoholic who'd suffered from depression. She had come from money, and considerable trust funds had been set aside for John and his five siblings, three younger sisters and two brothers. When Anne died of an illness, which was never fully explained, she'd been admitted to the hospital, and one day his father came home and abruptly announced that she was dead. John took over responsibility of his siblings. He was 16. John had never been that ambitious when it came to money, nor did he have to be. The trust account he'd received when he turned 21 was worth about three-quarters of a million dollars in today's money. He liked to work with his hands and got a job installing toilets and stabilizing equipment on boats. After he met and married his wife, Linda, he started his own company, Crown Marine, doing the same work, as well as servicing equipment on boats. He liked cars and purchased several sports cars over his lifetime. He also owned sailboats. But to meet him, you would never know he had any money. He dressed and lived simply and was not one to spend lavishly, or even much at all. By the time he met Marie, he was divorced from Linda and estranged from his siblings. After years of feeling responsible for his family after the death of his mother and then his father, he simply shed all ties to them. He felt his siblings had never appreciated him anyway. They didn't take his advice, and he felt everything he tried to do for them was taken for granted or ignored. Besides a couple of friends, he was basically a loner. He would later admit to a friend that he had met Marie who was now going by the name Robbie Hannon, in a bar in Fort Lauderdale. I wouldn't tell anybody this, John confided in his friend, but she was a hooker when I met her. Well, now we know how Marie'd been getting by. Resourceful gal. Marie was always one to try and elicit sympathy from men in order to manipulate them, and her initial meeting with John was no exception. Perhaps she began by acting interested in him before she propositioned him and identified herself as a working girl but she quickly began her sob story. She was doing this to earn some money, she told him, but her heart wasn't in it. In fact, that night was the very first attempt to prostitute herself. She'd approached John to be her first customer. She had left everything behind in Texas and now found herself penniless in Florida. Here's where we see that Robbie can really spin a yarn. Oh, and by the way, she took the name Robbie from her cousin, Robbie McCullers, the girl who was such a polar opposite to the Danny Marie when they were little girls growing up on Blue Mountain. However, Marie changed the spelling, dropping the E from the end of her new name. Robbie told John she had been married at age 16 to a man named Joseph Hannon. Hannon had been a wealthy lawyer. 
they lived a privileged and happy life. They'd had two children, Joey and Carol, the nerve of her using her real daughter's name. But tragically, she and the children had been in a terrible auto accident. Robbie had been driving when a drunk driver hit them. Joey and Carol had been killed. She'd felt tremendously guilty after she'd survived while her children had perished. As a result, she had a nervous breakdown and experienced severe depression, attempting suicide more than once. Two years after the auto accident, her husband Joseph suffered a heart attack and died. Unable to live with the grief and the memories in Texas, she had left behind everything to start a new life. She had taken nothing with her because she wanted to rebuild her life without ties to the past. Eventually, she said, she would go back and reclaim her inheritance and face the memories. But right now, she needed time and space. John Holman could immediately relate to this lost soul. He himself had cut off ties with his past. He also had wealth, but like Robbie, it had not made him a happy man or fixed his problems. He bought into her story, hook, line, and sinker. There was one other detail that made John strongly attracted to her. She was a damsel in distress. John had tried to help his mother, but she'd been unhappy and died young. He tried to help his siblings, who viewed him as bossy and meddling. But finally, here was a woman who needed him and was tremendously grateful for his help. As people in Marie's past had observed, she had an uncanny ability to read people and appeal to their most fervent need or wish. She then transformed herself into the person they most needed at that moment. In this way, she was able to exert a strong hold over her prey. Now, John was caught in her web. Soon after Robbie and John met, most likely immediately, they began living together. By that spring, John and Robbie were living in an expensive modern apartment in the Isle of Venice neighborhood in Fort Lauderdale. Robbie got a job at an accounting firm in West Palm Beach. John's brother Peter took a vacation to Florida and stopped in to see his brother. He met Robbie, who he thought odd. Within a few hours of meeting him, she would lay out her whole tragic life story, She would do this with everyone she met. She seemed jumpy and suspicious, asking Peter to open up some canisters of 35-millimeter film he had with him to prove to her he wasn't in possession of hard drugs. Then she told Peter that she was suffering from a brain tumor. It was currently under control, but at some point it would kill her, she said. Now that she'd met John, she vowed to make the most of whatever time she had left to her. His brother was obviously smitten, Peter could see. He wondered what the attractive and stylish woman saw in his brother. He was kind of a schlub. But they both seemed happy, so he put aside his doubts. John told Peter that they were thinking of making a move. Fort Lauderdale was being taken over by new money and large construction projects. It no longer had the small-town feel it once had when they were young. Peter, who had attended a small college in New Hampshire, spoke of New England's charms and encouraged them to relocate there. By the summer of 1980, John had closed Crown Marine, and he and Robbie moved to New Hampshire. John and Robbie ended up in the small town of Marlow, New Hampshire. They rented a small house at the end of a country road. The closest town to seek employment in was Keene, 20 miles away. Robbie registered at an employment service in Keene. She used the name Robbie Homan, John's last name, even though they were not married. She handed them a resume that outlined a fabricated version of her life story. 
I was born on March 25, 1945, in Buffalo, New York, it stated. She had shaved 12 years off of her actual age. She'd always passed for a decade younger, so it wasn't a hard sell. The family had moved to Tyler, Texas, when she was an infant. She graduated from Sacred Heart Catholic School in 1963. She worked as a secretary for a construction firm until August 1978. The business had closed due to the recession. Her new birth date, March 25th, was her mother Lucille's birthday. Her uncle Louie had lived in Tyler, Texas as a young man. Robbie was hired at a company in Keene called Central Screw as a customer service clerk. John soon found a job as a machinist. They would drive down into Keene each morning in John's Ford pickup. Robbie did not have a license. Robbie, as FBI profilers had predicted, still took great care with her looks. She wore blouses and skirts with a matching sweater or jacket. She wore high heels even to the less-than-fancy workplace where she was employed. Her co-workers would remark that her makeup was applied perfectly, and she never had a hair out of place. Soon after getting to know the other employees, she shared with them the story of her life. They were intrigued by her and hung on to her every word. Like I said, she could spin a yarn. Now she added additional details. Like she'd done before, she liked to talk about how she was neglected by her parents. This time she said she'd only lived the first few years with them, and then she'd been sent to be raised by grandparents in Tyler, Texas. Again, she liked to add details of living a wealthy and privileged life. Her grandfather had been a wealthy and respected citizen in town. Her grandparents were loving but strict. She was punished harshly at times, including being hit with a hickory switch. She'd been married soon after high school to escape her grandparents' rules. She was very happy with her wealthy husband and two children until the accident. Oddly, now she said her husband had also died in the accident, not from a heart attack, as she'd told John. She had been hospitalized with life-threatening depression after the loss of her entire family, and even now she could not bear to drive, thus explaining why she did not drive, not because her identity might be called into question if she tried to apply for a state driver's license. Robbie would mix her fiction with facts from Marie's real life. She'd nursed her mother when she was dying of cancer, she told her new friends. Her mother-in-law also had been diagnosed with cancer. These facts were true. After the strain of her mother's death and caring for her mother-in-law, she'd grown depressed and her brother-in-law had committed her again to a mental hospital. She'd fled and ended up in Florida, where she'd met John. She now gave details of the fictional life she'd left behind. She'd abandoned her mansion with the circular driveway and the Mercedes-Benz in the garage. She didn't have access to her money, including the proceeds from her husband's life insurance and their real estate holdings, due to her status as a mental patient. Even her clothing and possessions were held up due to this complication, which I'm pretty sure makes no legal sense, but I'm no lawyer. She alluded to legal proceedings that were in the works that would eventually release her inheritance. She always liked to pretend to be a wealthy person who had no access to her money for reasons beyond her control. But in New Hampshire, Robbie and John lived modestly in their small rented cottage. John drove an old pickup truck, and they didn't even have furniture. John's brother Peter gave him a few things to furnish the cabin that he had sitting in storage. Robbie slash Marie always had the need to let people know that she came from money and had money coming to her. Now she told her co-workers that she and John were looking at a property to purchase. It was a beautiful old Victorian house that sat on an 18-acre farm. 
It was for sale for $110,000, or over $300,000 in today's dollars. Of course, she had the money coming from her inheritance, so it was no problem. It was obvious to everyone that John was extremely happy with Robbie. He doted on her and treated her like a queen. Robbie had come to Marlowe using the name Robbie Homan, and in May of 1981, she and John made it official. They flew to Fort Lauderdale to be married. John had a longtime friend named Manfred Kirkow, who he asked to stand up for him as his best man. Only Manfred and his wife Kathy were present at the nuptials. John didn't invite any of his family or even inform them of the marriage. John stayed in Fort Lauderdale to have an injured knee looked at by a doctor he'd seen in the past. Robbie had to return to New Hampshire to her job. Without John, she depended on his brother Peter for rides to work and on his wife Shelley for a lift into town to buy groceries or run other errands. Peter was surprised to hear Robbie criticize his brother. She seemed angry with him and told Peter that he had only married her for her money. Peter hadn't sensed that at all, and they had seemed happy together before. But now, all she did was bitterly complain about John to him and Shelley. They felt uncomfortable having her share this with them and perplexed as to what had changed so suddenly. Robbie even told them she was thinking of divorcing John when he returned. So it was a great surprise when John returned and angrily confronted Peter. Robbie had told him that they had left her stranded, telling her that they were too busy to help her out. She'd been forced to find her own rights to work. Peter was so shocked that he didn't respond. John stormed out. Once he regained his composure, Peter was pissed. He went to his brother to confront Robbie, but Robbie stubbornly refused to admit that they had helped her at all. Peter shouted at her and called her a liar. John believed Robbie over Peter, and the brothers stopped speaking to one another. Peter even came and took back the furniture he'd loaned them. Why Robbie decided to concoct this lie is puzzling. Maybe she was just a pathological liar who needed to create drama around her, no matter what the cost. Or maybe she did it deliberately to estrange the brothers. Perhaps she felt Peter might find out about her deception and tell John. Whatever the reason, it was a dumb thing to do. It just created mistrust towards his sister-in-law and was a risky move on her part. John and Robbie had also spent time socially with one of his co-workers and his wife, Roger and Terry Williams. The relationship between the two couples had cooled after a few months. Terry, who worked as a security supervisor at a bank in Keene, had begun to dislike Robbie. She constantly needed to be the center of attention, and the dramatic story she told about her life seemed far-fetched to Terry. She had refused to participate in get-togethers, and Roger felt awkward as part of a threesome, so they stopped spending time together. This was a pattern that played out frequently in Robbie's life. Just as it had when she was Marie Hilly, she put people off after they got to know her. Now her relationships with her co-workers were also starting to become strained. In the office, the mood was often awkward or tense. Some outright disliked Robbie, and others just felt awkward and uncomfortable around her. She was still well-liked by her boss, Ron Oya, but he often wasn't privy to the interactions between his employees. When Robbie told her co-workers that she was taking a leave to go to Texas to straighten out her inheritance, they were glad of it. She had to re-establish residence in Texas for several months, she explained, as part of the terms of claiming her inheritance. So nine months after she had begun working at Central Screw, she took her leave. Her boss offered to rehire her when she returned. She said she didn't know when or if she would be back. 
In the summer of 1981, a little over two years after Marie Hilly had fled Alabama, she turned up in Clear Lake City, 20 miles outside of Houston, Texas. She introduced herself to a woman named Judy Cox, one of her neighbors in her apartment complex. She told Judy that her name was Robbie Homan, and she was from New Hampshire. She was suffering from a rare blood disorder, and she would be leaving shortly for Dallas for treatment. She was in Houston dealing with some business matters. She and Judy soon became friends. Robbie was generous with her friend, often purchasing items for Judy or her husband or kids. Judy would try to tell her it wasn't necessary, but Robbie told her she was coming into a large amount of money, and so she was happy to do it. Again, she changed some details of her life story for her new friend. She had grown up in Tyler, Texas, and then moved with her husband to New Hampshire. There, her husband Joe and her two children had been killed in an automobile accident. She had been hospitalized for grief and depression for months before she'd recovered enough to go on with her life. A few years later, she'd met and married a man named John Homan, who was a boat builder. Now, in her new story, she killed off her brother and sister-in-law. I assume this was Peter and Shelley. They died leaving their vast wealth to Robbie. Really? Why not his own brother? Robbie was in town settling the estate. Now Robbie told Judy that she suffered from migraines due to her blood disorder and had to move because her noisy neighbors exacerbated her condition. Judy and her family offered to let Robbie move into their spare bedroom. She accepted. While living with Judy and Gary Cox, Robbie laid out a plan wherein she offered to move them to Kentucky, where she and John were planning to relocate and start a boat building business. Judy had her own serious health problems, and the offer seemed like a dream come true. Gary would be partners with John, and the family would be set financially. Robbie was going home to New Hampshire, but she'd be back with John to visit at Thanksgiving, she said, and they would work out the plans to travel to Kentucky to scout sites for the business. Again, there was no real reason for Robbie to make false promises to her new friends. I guess she just wanted to act like a big shot, but lying to them like that and getting their hopes up was very cruel. One day, right before Robbie was set to return to New Hampshire, Judy found a piece of paper lying on the floor. It was a check stub from a payroll check dated a week earlier. The name and address was for a company in Houston. The check was made out to Robbie Homan. Robbie was working, not spending time at lawyers' offices like she told Judy. She had lied to her. Since she was soon leaving, Judy decided not to confront her. A few weeks after her departure, Judy received her phone bill. There was over $150 worth of calls made to New Hampshire. She knew Robbie had been calling home, but she was supposed to be reversing the charges. Now Judy, irritated, decided to call the company that's name was listed on the check stub she found. She found out Robbie had worked in the typing pool at the company. Robbie had told her the lawyer she was working with on her estate business was named Aaron Patterson. Aaron Patterson, it turns out, was actually the name of the typing pool supervisor. Now, Judy wondered, was there really any estate at all? She called the New Hampshire number listed on her phone bill. It was just before Thanksgiving when Robbie and John were supposed to arrive. When the person picked up the phone, Judy recognized it as Robbie's voice. Robbie, this is Judy Cox, she said. There was silence for a few beats. Then, this is her sister Terry. A bit confused, told Terry that she was calling to see if Robbie was going to come out for Thanksgiving, as she had not heard from her since she'd left. Terry then told her that Robbie had been hospitalized. You probably heard about her mental problems, she asked Judy. 
As a result, Robbie would not be available to travel to Texas for the holiday. Judy then mentioned the planned trip to Kentucky. Oh, yes, Terry said. She told me about that. It doesn't look like she's going to be able to do any of that now. She then told Judy she had to go, but she'd have Robbie call when she was feeling better. She hung up. Judy was almost positive the person she'd been talking to was Robbie herself. Robbie returned to New Hampshire and John. She also returned to her job at Central Screw. Her co-workers weren't thrilled to have her back, but her boss thought she was a great employee and hired her back with increased responsibility and pay. Soon after she returned, she began creating drama at work. She told her supervisor, Jerry Skadova, that her co-worker, Marcy Stabler, had been opening her mail and later said that she had come on to her husband, John. This was so out of character for Marcy that Jerry began to believe that Robbie was a liar and or unstable. Where once he'd liked Robbie and even enjoyed her company, he now found her difficult and hard to get along with. Robbie did have one friend at Central Screw, the young woman she trained as a replacement before she left, Claudia Brooks. Claudia knew some of the other employees didn't like Robbie, but she considered her a mentor and a friend. They began spending time together at lunch. Claudia thought she was glamorous and was enthralled by her tales of wealth. The inheritance had run into some snags, and it was going to take a few more months to be settled, Robbie told her. In the meantime, she was only working to keep herself busy. She didn't need the money. She also told Claudia about her properties, including a ski lodge in Aspen and a beachfront home in Carmel, California. Her twin sister, Terry, enjoyed skiing, so they were going to keep the house in Colorado, but they planned to sell the house in Carmel when the estate was settled. She also shared her health problems with Claudia. Claudia knew that her friends suffered from migraine headaches and sometimes could not work. This was as a result of a rare blood disease, she told her. She'd seen specialists, but they told her there was no cure. Sometimes the migraines caused her to have memory problems, perhaps using this as a way to explain away the inconsistencies in the stories she told. Sometimes she blacked out. When Claudia told the others about Robbie's twin sister, they were surprised. They'd never heard her mentioned by Robbie before, but Robbie would later explain this. Her disease caused her to blank out whole areas of her life. She'd blanked out her twin sister for a time. Can you believe that? She asked Claudia, weeping. Over the next few months, Robbie was increasingly ill with migraine headaches. She explained that her blood disease was progressing, and she was absent many times from work, either going home ill or to doctor's appointments. She also spent a lot of time on the phone with her sister, Terry. She'd lock herself in an office that employees were allowed to use to make phone calls. She spent many lunch hours alone, supposedly talking to her sister. John would later report during the same time that Robbie seemed to be suffering a mental breakdown. Sometimes she would cry uncontrollably or throw tantrums, raging in an almost little girl voice. She began telling John and others that she had been terribly abused as a child. She had previously told a story of being made to hang on to a fireplace mantle while being beaten with a switch. Now she told a darker story, saying that she'd been made to hold on to the mantle while being molested by her grandfather. Sometimes she'd been tied to a chair during the abuse, she said. One day Robbie came into work and told Ron Oya that she could no longer continue to work. She was fatigued and in pain. Her medication made her weak and tired. She was going to have to travel to Texas for specialized treatment. They decided that John would stay behind to work. 
There was nothing he could do for her since she would be in the hospital undergoing treatment. He did not want her to go, but finally agreed it was for the best. She left Marlowe, New Hampshire in September of 1982. Marie would later say that she did go to Texas, but only spent a couple of days in Dallas before flying to Florida. On September 23, 1982, she registered at the Howard Johnson Motel in Pompano Beach, Florida. It was located just a couple of miles from where her son Mike had once lived and where she had stayed with him and Terry. A few hours after checking in, she walked into a salon and had her brunette hair dyed a platinum blonde. She registered at an employment office and was sent to a company that was in desperate need of clerical help right away. She began working for Jack McKenzie, owner of Solar Testing Service. McKenzie was impressed with her office skills and her professionalism. She arrived to work in a taxi and told him she didn't have transportation. She had flown from New Hampshire and her car was still there. She planned to fly back soon and drive it down to Florida. McKenzie offered to drop her off at home and pick her up on the way to the office in the morning. Pompano Beach was just the next town over from where he lived and on the way. The first evening she had him drop her off along the strip near the beach. She had to run a couple of errands and could walk home from there, she explained. The next day, Robbie Homan from Marlowe, New Hampshire, checked out of the Howard Johnsons, and Terry L. Martin from Laconia, New Hampshire, rented a room at the Balkan House Motel. It's interesting to note that, again, Marie took the name of someone she knew, this time taking the first name of her daughter-in-law and using the same spelling. Jack McKenzie found Terry's help invaluable. He was in over his head with work and had not found anyone before who was such a quick learner and so efficient. He had been divorced for several years and lived alone. He also found Terry Martin attractive and nice to be around. Before long, on the rides to and from the office, Terry laid out her life story for her boss. She had moved to New Hampshire several years ago to be near her twin sister, Robbie. Robbie had lost her husband and children when their car had been hit by a drunk driver. She'd had a nervous breakdown and had been hospitalized several times. She told Mackenzie that Robbie was living alone in a big, beautiful house in the woods. She had help who came in each day to prepare meals and clean the house. Terry spent her lunch hours supposedly on the phone with her sister, reversing the charges so that her boss didn't get the bill. Terry had been married to a businessman who was an avid pilot. He was older than her and had died a few years earlier. They'd had no children, and she'd left New Hampshire to get a fresh start. A few weeks after she started working for Jack McKenzie, Terry came into work to report that her sister had suffered a stroke. She was going to fly up on the weekend to be with her. She would be back at work on Monday, she promised. Of course, McKenzie only knew what Terry was telling him. She hadn't left Florida at all, but was spinning another tale for her new boss. She continued to say that she was flying up to see her sister over several weekends, and then back to Florida. Even while she was talking of returning to New Hampshire to live with Robbie and take care of her, she told her boss that she was looking at a property to purchase. It belonged to the owners of the motel, where she had previously rented a room. The house was a two-bedroom, two-bath home located on Lighthouse Point. The owner, Peter Kristoff, took her out to see it. It needed work, but the location alone would make it pricey. He had hardly began the tour when Terry made up her mind to purchase it. It would be perfect to bring her sister to live with her. She talked about all the work she would do to the house, how she would position the furniture, etc. throughout the tour. 
She was very excited. Christoph told her the asking price was $200,000, and she said that was reasonable. He asked her how she would finance the purchase, and Terry said she would be paying cash. How soon can you be out, she asked him. He wasn't expecting things to move so fast, and he told her he'd talk to his wife and make arrangements. She promised to call him in a day or two to finalize their agreement. He never heard from her again. Once again, this is a head-scratcher. Why did she feel the need to go to all these lengths to lie to people? What was the purpose? I can only imagine it was Marie Hilly's need to, number one, pretend to be wealthy, or perhaps indulge her fantasies of being wealthy, or number two, create drama in her life. Let's face it, her life at this point was pretty boring. She lived in a rented room by herself, worked as a clerical assistant at a small one-person company, and that's about it. Pretty dull. Marie didn't do dull too well. So dull, in fact, that after six weeks of working at solar testing, Terry told Mackenzie that Robbie had died, and she was going to return to New Hampshire. Once there, supposedly, she called him to say she was staying there and wouldn't be back. Okay, so remember, Robbie Holman told her husband, John, that she was going to Texas for treatment for her blood disease. Instead, she turned up as Terry Martin in Florida, pretending that she had a sister named Robbie who was dying in New Hampshire. You got that so far? Now Robbie has died, and the next thing Terry did was to, okay, try to keep this straight, write a letter as Robbie to Terry to tell her that she knows she isn't going to live much longer. When she died, she said she wanted Terry to be the one to tell John, and she wanted her to go and be with him. He would need Terry to help him cope with her death. She should stay with him as long as he needed her to, she urged. She also said she wanted no funerals or memorials in her honor. She had already made arrangements for her body to be donated to the Texas Medical Research Institute. Finally, she wrote, I want you and John to go someplace and have a lavish dinner, even a party. Time is a slow healer, but I know that eventually it does heal. Just keep that in mind. Everything passes. Just please take care of John. He is strong about everything except me, Robbie. On November 11, 1982, Marie Hilly, a.k.a. Robbie Homan, a.k.a. Terry Martin, returned to New Hampshire a day after calling to inform John Homan that his wife had died in a Texas hospital. She met him at the airport and introduced herself to him. I'm Terry Martin, Robbie's sister. She had bleached blonde hair and was much thinner than Robbie when she had left. But other than that, she looked and sounded exactly like Robbie. John Homan, grieving the death of his wife, welcomed her and said it was a pleasure to meet her. Okay, I know what you're thinking. What the hell? Or some other more colorful term. How did she have the cojones to return, pretend to be dead, and also pretend to be her own twin sister? Well, she did. Just deal with the crazy, okay? I ain't making this crap up. They were identical twin sisters, remember? So, of course, they looked like one another. But there was something different about Terry. While Robbie slash Marie was attractive, she was petite and seemed prettier up close. She was classy and more subtle in her looks and charm. Terry, on the other hand, was a brassy blonde. Everything about her seemed more dramatic. Her movements were bigger. Her speech was more blunt and assertive. 
She was more of a head-turner than Robbie was. People noticed her from a distance. She called much more attention to herself with her style and personality. John was instantly fooled and believed this was Robbie's sister. The first thing Terry did was to close the chapter on Robbie Hillman. The day after arriving in Marlowe, she had John drive her to the local newspaper office, the Keene Sentinel, to place Robbie's obituary. Obituaries are generally phoned in by the funeral home, but since there was no funeral home involved, Terry had arrived to give the details in person and have the obituary published. Later on, this obituary would begin to unravel Terry's story. It read, Robbie L. Homan, 37, of Marlowe, died Wednesday in Dallas, Texas, after a long illness. She was born in Buffalo, New York, March 25, 1945, daughter of Hugh and Cindy Grayson, and had lived in Marlowe for two years. Mrs. Homan was formerly employed by Central Screw Co. in Keene and was a member of Sacred Heart Church in Tyler, Texas. Survivors include her husband, John Homan of Marlowe, and two sisters, Terry Martin of Dallas and Jean Ann Trevor of White Plains, New York. Mrs. Homan has requested that her body be donated to the Medical Research Institute in Texas and that no funeral be held. Contributions may be made in her memory to a favorite charity. Interesting to note that she made her father's name Hugh and her real father's name was Huey. Also, she created a second sister out of thin air now. It's also interesting that she felt the need to even publish an obituary. Not a requirement. She could have just skipped it, and perhaps things might have gone unnoticed. But for the third time, I'm getting ahead of myself. Robbie had set up the appearance of her sister before she left Marlowe. She had begun talking about Terry quite a lot at work, and also pretended to spend her lunch hours calling her. Robbie had continued to call Central Screw while she was in Florida to talk to her friend, Claudia Brooks. She told her that she was in a hospital in Texas and updated her about her condition, most likely setting the stage for her upcoming death. The receptionist had taken these calls and knew Robbie's voice well, so when she received a call asking to speak to Claudia in November, she said, Hi, Robbie, how are you doing? She was met with silence. Then Robbie's voice said, This isn't Robbie, it's her sister Terry. The receptionist was embarrassed at the mistake and forwarded the call to Claudia. She'd been informed it was Terry Martin, Robbie's sister, when she picked up the phone, but was still confused by the incredible similarity the caller's voice had to Robbie's. Terry then informed Claudia that Robbie had died. Claudia was devastated. She then informed Ron Oya, her boss, and the rest of Robbie's co-workers. They did not have to wait long to meet Terry Martin. Later that day, John Homan arrived with the blonde woman to Central Screw's office. Sandy Peace was the first to see her. She wondered why Robbie had dyed her hair such a brassy blonde color. John Homan asked to speak with Ron Oya, Robbie's old boss. Confused as to why Robbie hadn't acknowledged her, she called Ron Oya. Terry shook his hand and told him she'd heard a lot about him and Robbie's co-workers from her sister. She wanted to come by to remember Robbie to her good friends, especially Claudia Brooks. Claudia was called out of her office to say hello. When she looked at Terry, she blanched as if she had just seen a ghost. Other employees were just returning from lunch, and more than one said, Hi, Robbie, as they passed through the lobby. You must get that a lot, Ron commented to her. She said yes, she did. Even some of her own family had mistaken them for each other as they were growing up. In the back of the office, some of the employees gathered to discuss the bizarre scene in the lobby. Sandy Peace watched it all unfold from a distance, after first observing the blonde arrive. What's going on, she asked the others incredulously. 
That's Terry, Robbie's twin sister, they explained. Sandy couldn't take it anymore. Bullshit, she spat out. That's Robbie. Terry really had only wanted to meet Claudia Brooks, the younger woman who Robbie had considered a friend and one of the only one of her co-workers who still liked her. Claudia was so grief-stricken over her friend's death that she couldn't even look at Terry without dissolving into puddles of tears. Almost every other one of the employees was sure that the blonde was Robbie trying to pull a fast one. The only thing that threw them off was that her own husband, John, seemed to be genuinely grieving, and it was obvious he believed Terry was Robbie's twin. Could they be mistaken, they thought? Also, what was the point of lying and going to all the trouble to stage her own death, only to return as a fake twin sister? They were baffled by Robbie's bizarre behavior. John and Terry made a stop at the general store in Marlowe. Marlowe Grocery was owned by Carol and Fred Hammond and was a place where the residents ran into each other and shared news and gossip. The Hammonds were a central hub of knowledge in the small town. When Carol Hammond saw Terry, she exclaimed, Robbie, you've lost so much weight. She was then corrected by John, and she shared her condolences with him. She had not known Robbie well. John usually shopped alone, while his wife often remained in the truck when he went inside to make his purchases. Now that Carol had gotten word of Robbie's death, the news soon spread. John's brother Peter heard about his brother's wife's death from the Haymans. Even though they were estranged, Peter's heart went out to John. He went to visit him and offer his sympathy. Upon seeing John, it was obvious he was grieving deeply. Peter would report that it looked like he'd been crying for days. He was dumbstruck by the resemblance between Terry and Robbie. It was uncanny. Robbie hadn't shared much information about her family with Peter and Shelley. She had once mentioned another sister who lived in White Plains, New York, and was a model. She told them she was wealthy, but had been unhappily married and had since divorced. Robbie had never mentioned a twin sister to them, however. Terry continued to make the rounds to meet everyone that Robbie had known during her short time in Marlowe. Most initially mistook her for Robbie, and she had to correct people everywhere she went. People noticed some differences between Robbie and Terry besides the hair color and weight. Terry was much more outgoing than Robbie and was a chain smoker. John seemed to become comfortable with Terry right away. Being around her eased the pain of his loss. Terry decided to stay in Marlowe for the time being. She decided to look for a job. When she registered at the employment office, she told them she had worked at an auto specialty business in Fort Lauderdale. It's puzzling why she just didn't give them the name of the business she actually worked for there, Solar Testing Service. Before that, she'd been married to an army officer, and they'd moved around frequently, and she'd held a series of clerical jobs. She had the skills needed for an office job, but her typing speed was not as fast as Robbie's. She was offered a position at Book Press, a company located across the state line, in Brattleboro, Vermont. She would temporarily serve as the executive secretary to the vice president in charge of sales. John and Terry's routine followed the one he'd had with Robbie. They would often drive into town for breakfast at Friendly's restaurant, and then Terry would take the bus to work. Sometimes he'd drop her off at the newsstand, where she'd pick up a paperback book to read, just as Robbie had done. In the evenings, John picked her up from the bus stop on his way home from work, and they drove back to the small house in Marlowe. Terry had taken over Robbie's role seamlessly. But several people were questioning Terry's appearance and putting two and two together. Carol Heyman thought there were several things odd about Terry's story. 
she and Fred had invited John and Terry on an outing with them one day into New York. They thought it would be a welcome distraction for them. Terry said she'd never been in the North before, but then identified the Catskill Mountains as they passed. Carol thought this would be an odd detail for an outsider to recognize. Terry had also brought up some things about Marlowe that she believed an outsider would not pick up so quickly. She hadn't known Robbie well, but remembered some gold caps on her teeth. She'd noticed Terry also had caps on her teeth. She told Fred she suspected that Terry and Robbie were the same person. Fred said he wasn't convinced either way, so they decided to stay out of it. Roger Williams was John Homan's closest friend at Marlowe. They were co-workers and had come to know each other well. He'd been the one to question John about Robbie going alone to Texas when she was ill. John said that he couldn't afford to take time off work, and also that Robbie was too proud and didn't like John to see her so ill. Both Robbie and John were not overly sentimental, he explained, and sadness and grief were uncomfortable topics for them. Robbie didn't want him there, and he didn't know how to behave in that situation, so they both agreed that she would deal with her illness alone. Roger took him at his word. Roger's wife, Terry Williams, didn't like Robbie. She thought she was a phony from the jump. She was also a security officer at the bank and didn't entertain nonsense. Now she heard the talk about a twin sister arriving after Robbie's death and was skeptical immediately. She also picked up some similarities that she thought were odd. Terry Williams was from Texas. Her maiden name was Martinez. Terry Martin from Texas was sure a close match. One day, Terry Williams saw a blonde walk into the bank. This had to be the Terry Martin, she thought. She met for a few minutes with an employee in charge of credit accounts. After she left, Terry asked the employee about the woman. She told her that she was Robbie Homan's sister. Robbie had opened a visa account at the bank, and her sister Terry wanted to close it and apply for a visa card of her own. The credit manager explained that she would need to bring in a death certificate for her sister, and the bank would pass her outstanding debts into an estate account, and the balance would be taken care of by the bank's insurance. Terry Williams told her, under no circumstances, was she to issue that woman a credit account without proper identification and verification. That's Robbie Homan, she said. There's no such person as Terry Martin. I guarantee it. On Saturday, Robbie Homan's obituary was published in the local paper. After reading it, two of the employees, Sandy Peace and Jolene Hoover, thought it was just a bit too generic. They decided to take it upon themselves to verify the information recorded in the obituary. The first thing that struck Jolene, who worked in personnel, was the name. Robbie was not her first name. Her employee record showed Robbie's full name as Lindsay R. Homan. Why would the obituary identify her as Robbie L. Homan? They decided to make some calls and see if they could verify the other details listed. Peter Homan was also skeptical. He noticed some differences between the two, but also some similarities. Terry enjoyed the outdoors more than Robbie had. She wanted to try cross-country skiing, while Robbie had been irritated with John for giving her skis as a gift one Christmas. Both Terry and Robbie liked to read. Terry watched more television and smoked more heavily. Neither Terry nor Robbie drank much. John had confided to his brother that when Terry first arrived, he'd slept on the floor in the living room of the one-bedroom house. But after a few weeks, the relationship had become close, and they now shared a bed. John now seemed happier, and Peter was glad that his brother had company, who was helping him through his loss. Robbie had left instructions for her sister and John to go out for a nice meal to toast her life. Terry invited Robbie's friend Claudia. 
Claudia was still confused about the entire situation and didn't want to go. Her husband talked her into it. Maybe you'll be able to tell the difference between the two, and it will put the matter to rest, he offered. So she went. What she observed did settle her doubts, but in the other direction. Robbie, she knew, didn't drink. Terry ordered a cocktail, but at the end of the night, she noticed that Terry had barely taken a sip and the drink was still almost full. Also, when Terry pulled out a pack of cigarettes, Claudia noticed it was the same brand Robbie smoked. Claudia avoided Terry after that. Now Robbie's former co-workers were on a mission to discover the truth about Terry. Sandy called Dallas Information to see if she could find a phone listing for Terry Martin. She found two. Neither had ever heard of Robbie. Jolene had a friend in Dallas who she asked to find Medical Research Institute, where Robbie's body had supposedly been donated for research. There was no such place in existence. Sandy called a newspaper reporter and relayed the story Robbie often told about the accident that had killed her husband and children in or near Tyler, Texas. The reporter was intrigued and did some digging. He called her back and told her that he could not find any record of an accident like that. As well, there was no Sacred Heart Church in Tyler. Finally, and most importantly, there was no record of a Robbie Homan dying November 10th or any time that month in Texas. Now they knew that the person walking around town as Terry Martin was in actuality Robbie Homan. But what was she trying to pull? They weren't sure what their next step should be. But someone else was sick of the con game or whatever it was. Bob White was the owner of the newsstand where Robbie, and now Terry, had often bought books. Bob was a no-nonsense kind of guy. When he saw the obituary in the paper, he told his wife that it was a lot of baloney. He'd just seen her in town. One day, Bob saw Claudia. He knew her to be good friends with Robbie. He decided to approach her. What's this shit about Robbie Homan, he asked. She comes into my store every day. She's waiting for a bus to go to Brattleboro. I know it's Robbie. Claudia was tired of this question. She didn't want to be involved. But Bob wouldn't let her wriggle out of it. Is it Robbie or not? I don't know if it is. I'm so confused. I don't know if I'm coming or going, she admitted to Bob. That clinched it for him. If her own best friend didn't believe it, then he knew he was right. Soon after, Bob Hardy, a detective with the Keene Police Department, stopped into the newsstand. He told the detective about his suspicions. Something funny's going on, he said and I'm not the only one who thinks so. Detective Hardy decided to look into it. He first called the Bureau of Records and Statistics in Austin, the Texas state capital, to request a search for any record of Robbie Homan's death. He also went to the newspaper and got a copy of the obituary to try and verify the details. All his phone calls returned no record at all of Robbie Homan in Texas. It seemed to him that whoever she was had gone through a lot of trouble to try and change her identity, and he suspected she might be someone on the run from the law. He decided to bring in more help and called the New Hampshire State Police. Barry Hunter was assigned to the case. He began to do his own digging. Looking into the family listed in the obituary, he found no listing for Jean Ann Trevor, Robbie's sister, in White Plains, New York. He checked the state motor vehicle records and also the New York Bureau of Records to find a listing of twins born to Hugh and Cindy Grayson in 1945. Over a week of checking out all the details Terry Martin had written in the obituary, none had been able to be confirmed. He also ran a routine fugitive check. He thought he found something that matched. There was a woman wanted on federal drug charges. Her name was Terry Lynn Clifton, but used many aliases, including Melissa Martin. 
that seemed to closely match the Terry Martin alias. The fugitive was described as a white female. Her date of birth was February 25, 1947. Terry had listed her birth date as March 25, 1945, also a close match. Clifton was 5'3 and weighed 115 pounds, another close match to Terry Martin. The FBI were called in as this was their fugitive. On January 12, 1983, along with a detective from the Brattleboro Police Department, they decided to show up at Book Press, Terry Martin's place of employment, to ask some questions. When she exited work that day, they approached her. One of them showed her his FBI credentials and then pointed out the two state troopers. She did not react. We have reason to believe you are not who you claim to be, the agent said. He asked her if she would accompany them to the Brattleboro Police Department. She complied. One settled into an interview room at the station. State Trooper Barry Hunter began. We understand that Terry Martin isn't your name. She seemed resigned, but calm, not emotional. Can you tell us your real name? He then asked. Audrey Marie Hilly, she answered. Hunter was confused. He was expecting to hear Terry Lynn Clifton or one of her other aliases. He'd never heard of Audrey Marie Hilly. He then asked for her date of birth, which he provided as June 4, 1933. She was 12 years older than the age she claimed as Terry Martin. Do you have any involvement with being wanted by the police? She was asked. Yes, she answered. I'm wanted in Alabama for some check charges. She was still calm and matter-of-fact. The FBI agent excused himself and left the room to a computer that was linked to the National Crime Information Center's records. He entered the name Audrey Marie Hilly and date of birth. He found out that she was wanted on two counts of passing bad checks. However, she was also wanted in Anniston, Alabama, on charges of murder and attempted murder. He walked back into the interview room. Is there anything else besides bad checks you might be wanted for, he asked. Marie finally showed an emotion. She looked annoyed. Well, the police down there accused me of poisoning my daughter. That's so ridiculous. Why would I do that to my own daughter? Marie Hilly was placed under arrest as a fugitive and read her rights. She said she didn't need a lawyer. She was willing to talk without one. She answered all questions in a matter-of-fact way. She was wanted in Anniston, Alabama, and had been a fugitive for three years. Terry Martin and Robbie Homan were aliases. She had planned the Terry Martin alias for eight months, since May 1982, when she considered leaving John. He was a good husband, but she just needed to get away. She didn't want to involve him in everything. The only thing she'd done to change her appearance was to bleach her hair and go on a diet. Why did she come back then after leaving him, they wanted to know. I don't know, she answered. I kept trying to decide whether to keep running or give myself up. As to her discovery now, she said, It's a relief. I'm tired. It's been so confusing. She was found with a paper in her purse with a list of numbers. They were social security numbers she had planned to use in the future. She explained that it was hard to set up new identities. There were social security accounts, bank accounts, taxes. It was all so much work. She was afraid she'd be found out in New Hampshire, so she'd killed off Robbie Homan and fled to Florida. But she thought the story of her death relayed by her twin would keep John from trying to find her. He was easy to fool, and he accepted Terry so readily, she decided to remain in New Hampshire for a while under her new identity. She would figure out who to be and where to go later. 
And what was John Homan's reaction to finding out that Terry Martin was really Robbie Homan, who was really Marie Hilly, who was wanted for murder and attempted murder of her husband and daughter? He told her he wasn't going anywhere. He'd be there for her and would make sure she got the best defense possible. Now, that's loyalty or gullibility or stupidity. To tell you the truth, I don't know what to call it. He would tell reporters, we had three wonderful years together. She's the best thing that ever happened to me. As for the charges against her, he said, I honestly believe she didn't do it. Gary Carroll was contacted at the Aniston Police Department. Marie Hilly had been found and was being returned to Alabama. Carol was informed that her mother was in custody. She had undergone years of physical therapy and had made good progress. Normal movement had been restored to her arms and legs, although the bottoms of her feet would always remain ultra-sensitive, and sometimes smaller muscle movements, like in her fingers, were difficult. She was now 23 years old and still tiny, only weighing between 90 and 95 pounds. She decided to visit Marie in the city jail. She was still confused about her mother. She still loved her. She was her mother, and she had some good memories of her childhood. But she had to reconcile that with the woman who was accused of trying to kill her. It would always be a struggle for Carol. But for now, she still seemed to need her mother's love. Marie began to write loving letters to Carol, telling her she was always so special to her, and because of that, perhaps, she held on too tightly to her as she became a teen. She never mentioned the accusations about Frank's murder or the harm she'd caused Carol. Carol said she couldn't visit her until after the trial, but continued to write her letters. At the same time, she found the strength to cooperate with prosecutors for the upcoming trial. A psychiatric examination of Marie Hilly was ordered while she was awaiting trial. While it was determined that she understood the charges against her and could aid in her own defense, it was also reported that she was suffering from deep psychological issues. It outlined the unhappiness in her marriage to Frank Hilly early on, and when she found out she was pregnant with her second child, Carol, she felt trapped. She resented her daughter's existence, and later, when she needed money, decided she was expendable. But she wasn't insane in the legal definition, so that defense wouldn't fly. Most people who knew Marie Hilly didn't think she would agree to an insanity defense anyway. How many times had family members and friends urged her to seek mental help? She always refused, saying there was nothing wrong with her. She'd rather spend her life in jail than ever admit there was anything wrong with her mentally, one acquaintance said. Marie would say what she did, taking on new identities and even pretending to be her own twin, wasn't crazy. It was simply something she had to do for self-preservation. Marie was telling people that she had been framed in Alabama and had to flee in order not to be railroaded into prison. Marie's trial began in May. The jury would be sequestered for the entirety of the trial proceedings. The trial star witness was Carol Marie Hilly. She could speak directly to her mother's actions of injecting her with the substance later determined to be arsenic. She also told them that her mother told her to keep these injections secret. She described the time that her mother had given her Maalox out of an empty Tylenol bottle while on the way, supposedly, to pick up Carol's new car. Something must have been in the Tylenol bottle because when it came in contact with the liquid, it bubbled up and burned Carol's throat going down. She also told the court of her hurt and confusion when she'd learned how her mother had harmed her. She had attempted to take her own life on two occasions after her mother had become a fugitive. The defense didn't have a lot to work with to refute the charges against Marie, so it tried to sow doubt in the jurors' minds by discrediting the witnesses. 
They portrayed Carol as an unstable, sexually promiscuous drug user. Jurors didn't buy it. Frida Adcock, Frank's sister, was also a good witness for the prosecution. She shared Frank's comment to her about Marie giving him injections right before his death. Mike, unlike Carol, had long been convinced of his mother's guilt. He painted the picture for the jury of the heartbreaking scene of finding his father dead in his hospital room while his mother stood passively by. He believed both he and his wife had been poisoned by Marie, with Terry miscarrying their first child as a result. He told of his suspicions while his sister Carol was in the hospital and of finally convincing her to tell him how she'd been given injections by his mother. He was a powerful witness. Things were not looking good for Marie. The prosecution entered into evidence the several bottles found in Marie's belongings and in her purse that contained arsenic or residues from the poison. Finally, the motive was laid out. Marie wanted money, and one way to get it was by collecting life insurance. A representative from Liberty Life Insurance Company testified that Marie had taken out two policies in the summer of 1978, eight months before Carol became ill. Marie had trouble keeping up the payments. When one check bounced, she delivered a check in person to the company to reinstate the policy. The check included four months' extension on Carol's policy. But that check had also been returned by the bank because the account had been closed. A third and final check arrived from Marie to cover the bad check. The account manager at the insurance company hadn't even bothered to try and cash it. Marie's policy was terminated. All of this was taking place during the time that Carol was deathly ill and in the hospital. The prosecution's case was simple. Marie Hilly was greedy and wanted to collect a $25,000 life insurance policy on her daughter. She'd gotten away with it once before when she'd poisoned her husband to death, and that had led to a large payout. She also resented Carol and was willing to kill her own daughter for her own selfish gain. The defense tried to make a case that Carol had poisoned herself with drugs or that Frida had framed Marie to revenge the death of her brother. Neither of those arguments made much sense, and they didn't explain Frank Hilly's death by arsenic poisoning. The jury only deliberated for three hours before coming back with its verdict. Audrey Marie Hilly was found guilty of murder in the first degree and guilty of attempted murder, and they called for her sentence to be life in prison. Later, a jury member would say they only had to take one vote to reach their unanimous decision. At sentencing, the judge confirmed the life term on the murder charge and imposed the maximum sentence of 20 years on the attempted murder charge. Before being led away, Marie Hilly simply said, I still maintain my innocence. That should be the end of the story. But this case takes one more bizarre turn before the ending. I told you this was a good one. But first, let me tell you the answer to the question regarding Sonia Gibson. Sonia was Carol's young friend who had died so suddenly and her death ruled as a result of complications of a viral illness. Days after the end of Marie's trial, the district attorney was interested in opening a case to find out if Sonia had also been one of Marie's victims. However, Sonia's father objected to his daughter's body being exhumed. That fall, the court gave the order that Sonia's body could be exhumed. No toxic levels of arsenic were found in her body after testing. The case was then closed. Sonia's mother never had an answer to the reason for her daughter's death. She had died while Marie Hilly was still a fugitive. Marie Hilly was sent to Tutwiler State Women's Prison to serve out her sentence beginning June 9, 1983. John Homan moved to Alabama, taking a job as a machinist, to be near his wife. 
Every other Sunday, when Marie was eligible to receive visitors, he drove the 180-mile round trip to see her. Marie would become eligible for parole consideration in 1990, after serving one-third of her sentence, or just seven years. She continued to use her clerical skills in her prison work detail, and by her second year of incarceration, she had received trustee status and was allowed to work in the office of the warden. She appealed her sentence, but it was rejected by the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals in 1985. There had been rumors that Marie was planning an escape, but when questioned by the warden, she was able to convince him that she was being set up by other inmates who were jealous of her special status. By 1985, Marie was placed on minimum security status in the prison, meaning that she was eligible to leave the prison with supervision. She went on outings with groups of prisoners outside of the prison gates, accompanied by guards. A year later, she applied for upgraded status that would allow her to leave the prison for eight hours unsupervised. She was approved. By January of 1987, she had four successful eight-hour leaves behind her without incident. She wrote to the warden, Again, I thank you for my passes. I will never take advantage nor abuse any privileges you give me. The next level status was granted to her the following month. She was now given three-day furloughs off of prison grounds without an escort. Her first three-day furlough began on February 19, 1987. John came to pick her up at the prison for the drive into Anniston. She called Anniston's sheriff to check in when she arrived Thursday night, as was required. She did not call her son or daughter or any other family or acquaintances. She and John spent their time in the hotel where John lived, only going out after dark for walks. She was due back at the prison on Sunday by 4 p.m. Sunday morning, she told John she wanted to go alone to the cemetery to visit her parents' graves. They were going to meet at a nearby restaurant for breakfast at 10 a.m. They both left the hotel around 9 that morning. Later, a distressed John called the sheriff. He asked him to come to his hotel room. When he arrived he showed him a note written by Marie. He'd found it underneath his pillow after Marie had failed to show up at the restaurant. Dear John, it read, I hope you will be able to forgive me. I'm getting ready to leave. It will be the best for everybody. We'll be together again. Please give me an hour to get out of town. Destroy this note. It continued on, saying that a friend named Walter was picking her up and driving her to Atlanta. From there, they would catch a flight to Canada. After she got settled, she would contact him, she promised. They could then begin their life together again. A search for Marie Hilly was begun, but once again, she had vanished. Police officers were positioned around the homes of Mike and Carol Hilly in case she should show up, and also for their safety. The following Thursday afternoon, a woman who lived on Post Oak Road in the Blue Mountain section of North Anniston saw a person on the back porch of her neighbor's house. It was a female, and she appeared to be trying to break in. She was on her knees, gripping the door handle. She drove to the home of another neighbor, and they called the Aniston police. They drove back to the house to await the police, and saw the woman slumped over on the porch. There was a drizzling rain at the time, and the woman was soaked through. She was dirty and disheveled, and her skin was a blotchy pink and purple color. Her clothes were inappropriate for the cold weather and the freezing rain they'd been having the last few days. She was wearing slacks, a thin zip-up jacket, and boat shoes. Her clothes were splattered with mud. They asked the woman her name, and she said it was Sellers. Her car had broken down, she said. 
She had walked part of the way and then crawled the rest and made it to the porch where they'd found her. Her speech was slurred. An officer arrived and at first thought the woman was drunk or suffering the effects of a diabetic coma. Her face was also mud-streaked and one of her pinky fingers was twisted in an unnatural manner. She looked like a character from a horror movie who tried to claw her way to safety. Ironically, both of the women who talked to the woman on the porch knew Audrey Marie Hilly. One of them had attended high school with her, and both had followed her case in the newspapers. Neither one of them recognized her as the wretch they had found on the porch. The filthy and disheveled vagabond they'd found did not at all resemble the smart and stylish woman they knew Marie to be. Marie Hilly was rushed to the hospital by ambulance. She was suffering from hypothermia. She must have spent the four days and nights since she'd fled out in the elements. It had been cold and rainy for several days, and the temperature at night was close to freezing. Being exposed to the cold for so long, her body had been unable to retain the heat it needed to survive. She suffered a heart attack in the ambulance. At 5.30 p.m., she was pronounced dead. She was 53 years old. The coroner would conclude that she'd been in the woods for 24 to 36 hours before she was found. It appeared that she had walked along the abandoned railroad tracks to Blue Mountain. There were large bruises and scratches on her knees and legs. At some point, she had fallen to her knees and crawled the rest of the way. Ironically, the porch where she collapsed was located in Blue Mountain, in the same small section of Anniston where the mill workers lived and where she'd grown up. Marie Hilly, who had rejected the simple life of those in her community and had always strived for more to the detriment of everyone around her, had come full circle and back to her roots when she died. Was this an unconscious drive to return to her true self or just a strange coincidence? We may never know. Audrey Marie Hilly was buried in Forest Lawn Garden Cemetery next to her husband, Frank Hilly, her first victim. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I told you it was a crazy one. I hope you liked it. If you did, tell a friend and share the crazy. I recently found a great show about this case. You can hear directly from Marie's son, Mike Hilly, about his experiences with his mother. He even shares some of the Hilly's home movies, so you can see what she looked like in real life. The show is called American Monster, and it's on the Investigation Discovery Channel. The episode is titled Alabama Murder Mystery, and as of this writing, you can watch it online on their website. I've included a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. It helps me tremendously and helps others to find the show. I'll be back next time with a whole new series. You won't want to miss it. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Mm-hmm.